the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, parking white hot e-arcs and orbital larks while defending against alien farts. And the conclusion of the audio drama version of Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, set in his hard magic Remnoir universe all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we talk with M. Elizabeth Ticknor, Stephanie Craner, and C. Jonah Abbott about their top finishing stories in the Bain Fantasy Adventure Award for 2021. Elizabeth Ticknor's story took the grand prize and it's featured this month on the Bain.com front page. And we conclude our audio drama presentation of Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas. First, here's the news. Oh boy, oh Brontosaurus, the September e-arcs are here. Now, an e-arc is the pathway of agitated soul light that is etched across the underside of the cosmos like worm tracks under the bark of a pine tree when a new vampire is born and a trace of consciousness is pulled back to animate the corpse. And uh, that's not right. An e-arc is not that at all. An e-arc is an advanced reading copy of a book, a new book that we're going to put out in three or four months. In this case, it's uh, November and December that the uh, September e-arcs represent. You can get your favorite author or series in advance before anyone else. Um, we, these are the sorts of things we send out to the reviewers and the uh, booksellers and such, but we will also get it to you. If you uh, go to the Bain.com website and pay a little fee, um, we've been doing this for years and it's a great program and people who really are just waiting for their favorite author or want to try something new before anyone else um, love to take advantage of it. So first out in September, that was now, this is then EARC by Michael Z. Williamson. Soldiers out of time. Then first Lieutenant Sean Elliott and nine other mixed service U.S. soldiers on a convoy in Afghanistan suddenly found themselves thrown back to Earth's Paleolithic age. Now, the Bicos, who are humans from the far future, their meddling has caused the first rift, that, and now they've stranded another group of American soldiers in the ancient past. They need Elliot's team of time-toughened veterans to return to the Paleolithic and gather these displaced soldiers for recovery. And finally, out in EARC form is 1637, The Coast of Chaos, by Eric Flint, Paula Goodlett, and Gorg Huff. The fight for the new world is on. In 1636, the recently formed United States of Europe make a private pact. The USE agrees to create no settlements along the north coast of North America above the South North Carolina line. In exchange, the Netherlands, who controls it, in the 1600s, agrees to abolish slavery in its possessions and to assist the USE in suppressing the Atlantic slave trade. Now, the American coast of chaos is set for explosion that may change the future forever and liberty and justice for all hang in the balance. Also out in EARC is Sword and Planet, edited by Christopher Rocchio. Science fiction and magic rule the stars. 
The distant future, like the distant past, is a place of myths, of legends, and of great heroes. Here are stories where magic and science exist together. Knights and starships, wizards and ray guns, swords and planets. Stories by Simon R. Green, Jody Lynn Nye, and many more. Sword and Planet E-Arc. 1637, the Coast of Chaos E-Arc. And that was now, this is then E-Arc, are all available at Bane.com. Nowhere else. Get them now. Hey, want to welcome uh, M. Elizabeth Pickmore, uh, Stephanie Craner, and C. Jonah Abbott to the podcast. Hi, folks. Hello. Hi. Glad to be here. Now, these are the three uh, winners uh, in that order that I read them, one, two, three, of the Bain Fantasy Adventure Award for 2021. This is... Um, an award we give out every year. I think we've done it for about 10 years now. It's it's sort of the fantasy uh, equivalent of our um, Jim Bay Memorial Science Fiction Award that we also give out yearly. Um, it recognizes the best original adventure fantasy story in the style of fantasy greats. Um, like, say, Larry Correa, Mercedes Lackey, Elizabeth Moon, Andre Norton, and, you know, Tolkien, that guy. Um, and the general idea is that uh, it... It's adventurous and it's a, it's story driven, and it has a great. Um, it the characters are important, but the story is just as important, and it just should be a great fantasy story with lots of action and um, still that sense of awe and wonder that that you can get, and that sense of magic that you can that that you carry away from a great fantasy story. So our grand prize winner. This year is M. Elizabeth uh, Tickner. Um, Elizabeth, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and and how you came to writing and how you came to write this story? Uh, well, tell us about yourself first, and we'll get to the story. How about that? Okay. Um, I am a mother of twin dragons, babies. You know, they're 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 almost three year old boys, so they might as well be dragons. Mm. <laughs> um, and I, I worked retail for about a decade and then I decided I was done with that when we had the kids and it was gonna cost as much to watch them like at a daycare as it would to get my weekly paychecks. So I, um, I started writing a lot more intently at that point. I'd been working at it here and there as kind of a, a hobby, but, but now like I'm usually either watching the kids or writing <laughs> so um they were really kind of what really drove me to really push for it because i'd already been interested in it but i, I figured if i can handle twins i can handle anything so um i'm working on short fiction till about when they hit school age and then i'm really going to push for the novels at that point <laughs> you might be able to string some days together at that point yeah yeah, that's the hope. I, I might try for a novel or two before then, but short stories are easier. Yeah, I'm in touch with that emotion from from younger days. So, um, and your story, the winner is called Echoes of Meridian. Uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, Steph Craner, uh, how about you? Your story is called Absinthe and the Alchemist. Um, where do you come from? How did you get into this strange uh, field? So I am from the Pittsburgh area, um, been here my whole life for the most part, uh, writing mostly 
back in what would have been junior high or so, I read, well, we read in class, The Cask of Amontillado by Edgar Allan Poe. And I don't know what made me think this, but like 13-year-old me said, I could do that. For the record, 13-year-old me was absolutely wrong. Um, could never write Cask of Amontillado. But um, that's really kind of what, what got me into it. I've been writing for a long time. I only within the last year or so started really trying to to hone it and you know submit. I write short fiction predominantly and submit that to you know professional markets. I had a story in FNSF in the May June issue of this year. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that was I was so excited. <laughs> Literal happy dance there. But um yeah, so eventually kind of like what Elizabeth said, um, I feel like once I get the knack for short stories down, I'm going to turn my attention more to novels. Very good. And uh, C. Jonah Abbott, how about you? Oh, well, I was born and raised in South Central Missouri, uh, moved to Colorado uh, for my degree in social sciences, and then moved back to Missouri. Um, and, uh, and I worked um, similar to Elizabeth, I worked, I worked retail for a while, um, worked my way up to being an auditor. And uh, then, then when I'd paid off my student loans, I decided to take the plunge and go for the uh, more, uh, less, less hobby writing and, and more trying to actually make it. Um, and this uh, short story, The Codes of Binding, uh, was my first uh, real uh, attempt out the gate. Very cool. Well, it's really good. You have a bright future. Um, so were any of you now, what we usually do is give this award away at Dragon Con in Atlanta. Um, the main judge, the guy that sort of runs it is my counterpart, uh, Bain executive editor, Jim Menz. Did any of you guys make it to Dragon Con this year for the presentation? Yeah, I did. Oh, that's very cool. I was able to, but I, I was yeah. really excited that because, um, Mark Stallings was willing to read my speech for me, which was nice. Ah. Yeah, that's cool. So um, the the winner, Elizabeth, um, got this cool trophy. Um, I don't know if you've gotten it yet, but you will. <laughs> I have it. I do. I have it downstairs somewhere safe because if I put it somewhere else, the kids will get to it. <laughs> uh, and, and that would not be fun. <laughs> and a box of swag, which I think we sent it out to you. And um, the main thing is, is that we publish your story on the website and pay you for it. So, um, and that went live today. So it is now on the Bain website on the front page there. And it also, yeah, it went out in the, um, in the newsletter that we send to maybe about 20 to 30,000 people who have signed up for it. So everybody knows about it now. So that is very cool. So, uh, well, let's talk about Echoes of Meridian. Um, this is what what is this all right first there's sirs um who is sort of our viewpoint character for uh, a, a portion of it and then let's see no all right drora is the uh, is the daughter the adopted daughter right yes yes and sirs is the thing and the thing is yeah. is he a golem or what explain the world here a little bit and give us a setup of where we are well, the gypsy he's light. essentially, okay, he's essentially a flesh golem but I, I i changed it up a little bit just because like 
I don't want to take from that culture and also the magic in the world is a little bit different but it, it is a very similar to like the idea of a, of a flesh golem it's he was constructed f- from corpses and animated through necromantic energies and so, so like frankenstein ish yes, yes yes that was definitely a big part of the inspiration <laughs> um and then um essentially what's going on with with the backstory with the world is um about 50 to 60 years ago there was this big war where they essentially had a magical arms race between two different countries and um so they ended up with like like zombies and constructs as their tanks and and things like that and for, as an equivalent um and then um people like dora the ferals they were taken from live people who were experimented on to try to add in um more I guess animalistic features like things like claws and teeth that were sharper so they could take down these big things as opposed to just getting run over by them. I kind of pictured her as being a a cat-like or panther-like being is that? That, Yeah um humanoid but with um like panther-like kind of like talon claws at the end of her fingers and stuff like that Mm -hmm. yeah. She loves to hunt. Yes yes she does. So what's what's happened? How how did she hook up with this dude, um, this this Frankenstein golem? <laughs> and why are they together here at the beginning? What's going on? Well, um, when she was very young, um, her mother was captured um, by uh, some hunters, and uh, Sarah's ended up coming across that caravan. I actually have a story on my website, uh, ticknertales.com, that kind of details this too um but she would he ended up rescuing her because her mother died and the hunters he he saved her from the hunters and then he tried to find her a new home but in the end he ended up taking care of her himself and they've grown up together and she is um still quite quite the huntress because it's yeah. instinctive with her i suppose mm-hmm. uh, but there's a there's a sort of love between them as well that's um yeah father daughter ish yes yeah it's it was she was his first real connection that was a more long-term thing because um up until that point for for like 30 or 40 years um he'd been struggling to really make long-term connections because when people found out that he wasn't human they were like oh you're scary go away now please (laughs) and sometimes it wasn't a please (laughs) Does she know at the beginning of the story any of any of his backstory or even what he is? No, um, she knows maybe a, a few things, like the fact that he found her when she was a child, but um, she kept a lot of it. He, he kept a lot of it secret because um, he didn't want to bother her with some of that knowledge. It's the sort of thing you don't necessarily want a kid to know because it was essentially things like the horrors of war and the aftershocks yeah that's what she gonna do with it she has she's so young so what all right so along comes i'm trying to remember his name this rather nasty necromancer um <laughs> what, what, is, what is he up to and what's his um his his purpose well um 
when he built Sears, he thought he could control him. He didn't realize he would become sentient. There was kind of a fluke in the magic as far as he's concerned that gave this thing a will of its own. And he was never able to replicate that creation um, because Sears is, a, is the most efficient golem he's ever seen or created. And he wants to um, replicate that and to be able to control what he already created. It's it's kind of like he's, he's longing. It's sort of like Sauron's longing for the ring. He put so much of himself into this this creature that um... and and then it turned out to not want to go fight things, and that's what he built it for. So he's going to make it go fight things. That's that's his job is to make things fight things. <laughs> yeah, and so one of the things that's really cool is is the sort of way you describe the magic. Um, I love the that that this thing is like covered with glyphs and they're Sarah's he's not a thing he's a, <laughs> a sentient thing being thing is um, glyphs and tattoo like things and and these light up when uh when the necromancer uses magic on him mm -hmm. among other things so so what is um how did he get free will and escape in the backstory um the free will thing that's something i've never actually gotten into in the stories but essentially um because he was animated near the meridian valley which is where the war was taking place and there was a lot of natural magic in the area which was part of why the war was happening in the first place um there was a spark from the natural magic that worked its way into the more uh, formal um, stuff where you, because there's kind of two different magics that are warring in this world, essentially. By It's not something that's like, there's the magic that people practice and learn, and then there's the natural magic that they're kind of afraid of because they don't know how to control it. And sometimes when people manifest that, they don't know what, what's going on and then they'll blow up a town. <laughs> So um, it was when the, before the valley exploded, which is what happened to end the war, um, they were trying to control it and, and Sarah's was animated in the vicinity of the valley. So some of that magic worked its way into him and gave him that spark. Uh, so it's sort of like wild nature magic that, that or magic that it was not a controlled thing of humans or of, of whatever these things are that, that yes. got into him like um he breathed it in somehow in the creation of himself so um but but our magic our magic user our, our really wants to use him again yes um he's been hired to start a new war essentially ah. and um, he wants to make that happen and Sarah's is a really good way to make that happen if he's willing to fight which he usually isn't that's the cool thing i mean he's become like you know the quiet man um he doesn't want to fight because he killed a guy in the ring you know and they, they keep and and in a way drawer keeps wanting him to fight or at least to go out and go out and hunt and he won't even do that right he's like right yes yes he is and and it's I like that dichotomy between them because she's she doesn't understand why he doesn't want to at the beginning of the story and by the end of it she she kind of learns 
which is is a nice thing for her. That's kind of her arc is realizing, oh, it's okay if he doesn't fight, maybe. But that doesn't mean I that he can't, you know, help me out here and there. Yeah. And so the big problem of the story, which we shall shot uh give away, but is um is that he's still responsive to this commands of the bad guy. He just got away from him. So he's still sort of, and he can be ordered to destroy things, even things he loves. Yes. And, and it's, that's definitely a big part of the conflict in the story there is um, when, when he gets taken away and then Dora tries to go get him back and then everything goes sideways. Mm. Now, it sounds like from what you were saying that this is part of a story series and that you have this world is rather large um, and, and developed already in your mind or in other stories. I've, I've written several short stories that are centered in this world, not necessarily all around Serge, but like a lot of them are. Um, he's. I want to write novels about this specifically, among other things. So I, the short stories are kind of my way of figuring out either a combination of backstory or um, maybe starting points to make the novels happen, jump, jump from later. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or it could be that one of these stories you could develop into, into a novel. Oh um, yeah. Oh yeah. I've, I've got a few different that. ones that catch my attention that way. <laughs> Very cool. Um, so what are you, what are you working on now and what, what are your plans uh, in the immediate um, future? I know you want to be a, fantasy novelist <laughs> i'm um i'm working on putting together an anthology of stories for some friends of mine um i'm currently um, working on the cover for that because i do some art too and um after that i have a weird western novel that i kind of is part finished that i want to finish up but aside from that it's just kind of writing whatever short stories catch my attention and going from there very good. Well, we hope you continue to write as well as, as, uh, as this turned out to be. And uh, I'm, I'm not stopping anytime soon. <laughs> I'll have a bright, a bright future. So, um, well, let uh, let's talk a little bit about Steph Craner's Craner's um, story. Uh, this is the second place story. This is Absinthe and the Alchemist. Now, this story also has to do with issues of free will um, and uh, coercion and and such. So. Um, our our main character is what? Yeah. Our main character is a dragon of sorts. She is sort of a patchwork dragon um, that was put together by the alchemist um, who sewed together um, dyed leather, um, gave her iron teeth and talons. Um, this didn't make it into the story, but sapphires for eyes and actually stuffed her with dead leaves. And then to bring her to life, he poured a boiling potion, the predominant ingredient of which was absinthe, down her throat. So that is how she got her name. Yeah. And she's, like you said, she's not really a dragon, but she feels like a dragon. And as she awakens into, into consciousness, um, she understands what it means to be a dragon. Where does all that come from? What? Um, I suppose you could say that the alchemist did a very good job whenever he created her, um, took, you know, real life studies that he had made because he is a scholar. One has to be to be an, an alchemist worth anything, right? 
Um, so he used the information that he had um, of dragon kind, dragon lore, um, and he used that and he poured that into the spell to, I don't think that he intended to give her quite the amount of dragon inclinations that she had where she wanted to be a real dragon and she could understand dragon tongue and all of that, but it was sort of incidental. If you want a realistic dragon, you get side effects. Yeah, she's kind of like the Velveteen Rabbit that wants to be. <laughs> that was my favorite book as a small child. <laughs> a real dragon. Um, so, um, and why does he need a dragon? He needs a dragon because he is an alchemist and not a, a wizard or a warlock or any of that. He creates, al uh, sorry, absinthe to, to destroy an enchantress that he sees as a threat to his power because the enchantress has already been able to bond with a real dragon who is pretty pretty fearsome we'll say um and he is threatened by that and also by the idea of being ensnared by an enchantress um which is sort of ironic really since he he exercises that same level of control over over absinthe throughout much of the story yeah now she um this is a world tell us a little bit about the magic system here because this is a world where names convey power yes so names have some amount of not only power in and of themselves um, but also power over you so if someone or something knows your true name they could potentially use that to manipulate you, to, to control you, to, to influence your behavior or your decisions um, in, in some way. But also um, for, for those who are inherently magical, such as our enchantress, for instance, um, the, the use of the name can also impart magic or be a way to, to use magic and influence the world outside yourself. Uh, I absence name comes to her um she gives it to herself in a way or at least she thinks she does uh, which i thought was really cool in that um the last thing ingredient used to make her became her name um and i always it made me start thinking what was the last ingredient used to make me could it you know <laughs> could i find my true name that way that would probably be puppy dog tails but <laughs> Uh, I don't know if I want that as my true name. But, uh, <laughs> this is cool. I mean, did were you influenced by, say, Ursula Le Guin's RC trilogy or something like that? Because that, that is the magic system there. That's, you know, you learn the real names. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was definitely a huge influence to this, um, to the magic system. And the world itself, really, like, it's kind of like that dark, gothic sort of fantasy, which... I've always wanted to write a story set in that sort of world um, and have never never done so or never at least completed one that I was satisfied with. Yeah. And Absinthe is, in, is kind of like a golem dragon in a way, or Frankenstein dragon. I love that she's made of stuffed leaves. That's very cool <laughs> on the inside. With you, she was very indignant about that. <laughs> yes, yeah, she doesn't agree. But um, she... Uh, is set upon she has she's sent to do a task and what is the task and what's the problem that she's facing the task that she has set is to fly and locate not only the enchantress but also her dragon her ice dragon clavinius and her specific orders are rip shred bite tear kill 
um, which she doesn't want to do. She's, I mean, given that she's a newborn, she's totally innocent. She's literally learning pretty much everything as she goes. And given the, you know, the cruelty and the way that the alchemist treats her throughout, she understands suffering and she doesn't want to inflict that on anything else. And also she feels very grateful despite the horror of her circumstances to be alive. And she doesn't want to take that away from anything either. Mm. But she has to basically, I mean, she's, she's compelled to obey in this case. Um, and much like, uh, the golem in uh or the thing in elizabeth's story she's trying to figure out a way around this um because she didn't want she didn't want to do it who tell us a little bit more about the enchantress and and why um what set up this 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 clash between magic users so the backstory here is that the enchantress is a former lover of the alchemist um from 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 many many years ago um where she essentially spurned him to she didn't like the way that that he was becoming that he was depending upon alchemy so much and using it for his evil purposes so although he does truly see her as a threat because she's a powerful enchantress it is also sort of a revenge thing so and there is also sort of a i guess it's a relationship of respect developing between our our fake dragon and the real dragon Clovenius. Yes, absolutely. Um, sort of teaching her how to be a dragon in a way, I guess. Yeah, he's a very stern sort of teacher, but he does, he basically sets her up for something and she has to figure it out. And she she sort of appreciates that because the other lessons that she's learned have been cruel at best. Mean your, uh, necromancers and alchemists. Yeah, so uh, so what what else have you been working on and what are you working on now? So I, like Elizabeth, I, I pretty much just write short stories. Um, I don't have a novel or anything longer in the works at present, but um, I am working on a short story right now, kind of a longer one um, that is science fiction, actually. I, I predominantly write science fiction and only occasionally dabble in fantasy, but it's sort of a post-apocalyptic world where the world is toxic entirely. Um, and our, our main character is trying to find a way to get a bio suit so that they can survive in this toxic wasteland because theirs is too small. So it might puncture or tear and they might not survive. Well, I hope they find it. Uh, <laughs> nothing like being eaten by Icker to, to ruin your day. Yeah, that's not a good way to go. <laughs> well, very cool, very cool. Um, wish you best and don't forget since you're also an SF writer to uh, enter the Bane Fantasy. Adventure Award. You know, we've had a double winner um, before now. Uh, last year, I believe, was uh, Scott Huggins. Yes. Won, um, the, this year, he won the fantasy, he won the science fiction award. And the year before that, he won the fantasy award. So it's kind of like winning the lottery twice, except <laughs> you're good at it and you win because you deserve it <laughs> instead of just being lucky. <laughs> you could, uh, you may, Maybe you could keep at it and see how see how that goes with science fiction. So see Jonah Abbott. Let's talk about your story, The Codes of Binding. This is a really complex world that I thought was pretty cool. Um, well, thank you. The uh, we start with a pregnant woman on a pig farm. <laughs> so take us from there a little bit. Yes. Well, so 
well pregnant somebody <laughs> yes well so so what is gradually revealed as as the story continues is that the pregnant woman is actually an elf um and she was forced out of her home um by her family because she chose to love a man um and so that's in, the inspiration for that is very much from from Tolkien and his Baron and Luthien and Aragorn and Arwen stories but I kind of wanted to pick up with that and follow like after the romance like what what their life was like after that initial point um and so a lot of other um a lot of a lot of stories today I would say tend to focus on a little more dysfunctional families um which is certainly a great uh um, source of drama. Um, but in my case, I wanted to write about a couple that loved each other and had children and, and were a very happy young family, but the tension had to come from elsewhere. And that is where the manticore comes in, uh, which is, um, it, it's, it's a little bit different from uh, manticores such as seen in Dungeons and Dragons, um, but uh, somewhat, somewhat similar um in that it so it's it's a it's a blend of the dungeons and dragons model with uh something like um well so it has the wings from dungeons and dragons but the still has the human face out of the ancient uh persian form of manticore so um our uh our our heroine um athria our elf woman is pregnant with her second child and she has what a three-year-old running around and uh her elven water breaks however that happens right or something like that <laughs> and um correct yeah i mean the elves are very similar to humans they aren't they aren't immortal as in uh the tolkien world um they they have very similar lifespans to humans the difference being that uh they can sense and use magic all right so she's she sends the three-year-old to go get her husband but um something's after her as well and and throughout the story another cool thing about the story is that it is a slow reveal of the backstory so let's talk a little bit about that because um and and it you say it's tolkien influence but it also has that sort of uh camelot sort of feel of the hidden kingdom and and uh that Celtic sort of um, magic. Tell us a little bit about that. And um, what's the name of that place? Po Porothia, I'm trying Pormenir. to- yeah. is the name of the city. And yes, yeah, so that stemmed from, um, I, I, I needed there to be some internal conflict between men and elves going way back um, in order for there to be the tension between uh, Tenathria and Voster's relationship. Um, and so I decided that uh, using their magic, they would have sequestered themselves away in enclaves um, across the world and used their magic to cast illusion spells so that any humans that happened across it would not be able to see their city. And what, um, so Aethria is not just any elf either she is she's related to she's she's nobility right yes she's the daughter of the arbiter um which 
there there isn't really nobility in in the it's it's sort of a clan system where the arbiter is like the chief judge overseeing disputes between the different members of of the clans in the enclave and how does she meet voster uh, voster uh came across a dying elf um out in the wilderlands he was he was uh, hunting and came across a dying elf um, and was able to uh, get a little bit of information from him before he passed out and uh, the general direction and then was able to find the city from there. And Voster is kind of a student of, of, of this, right? Even before he finds this guy. Correct. Yeah, he, he found he found some ruins um, in which the story of the uh, the ancient um, tug of war between men and elves uh, was chronicled by one of the last men to have to have seen um, the both societies live together in harmony before the schism. Yeah, and so we're uh, and and. Um... So we've got somebody who's very respectful of elves, and um, that's part of that respect he shows is part of what makes Aethria fall for him. Yes, yeah, and and the fact that he was willing to to risk his own life um, and come where he was not welcome um, in order to save another elf. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, well, this is very cool, and then uh, we we get a story of sacrifice and love and and things we cannot reveal. But um, it, it's, a, it's a really fun little story. Where are you uh, in your writing and where, where you hope to go um, in, the, in the near future? Are you writing mostly fantasy? Uh, currently, yes. Uh, most, of my, most of my ideas are fantasy. I have a few uh, for military science fiction, um, but I haven't done a whole lot with those yet. Um, this short story actually spiraled out of um, a, a larger novel that I'm working on um, but the, it, it, the events of this story um, ended up working better, far better on their own than they ever would as a part of the larger novel. So I, I took it off and set it aside and decided to work on that separately for a while. And so the, the novel is set in the same world, same magical system, same, same conflicts. And it's actually about the two children um, in this short story come out of this this yeah that's cool so well it's a very rich world and uh, it certainly seems like it can sustain a novel so good luck with that thank you um, so let's talk about where we could find uh everyone's work and find out about what you've done and, and maybe read some samples of your writing um how about you uh jonah abbott where could where could people locate you um, I'm not very active on social media right now, and uh, with this, the short story was my first venture into uh, more professional writing. Um, so right now, I'm, I'm afraid there's right. <laughs> not really well, anything to tell Keep your name in our hearts <laughs> and, and deploy it when, when the time is right. So, well, we hope to see more from you over the years and uh, in the near future. Uh, Steph, what about you? Do you have a website or something? Uh... Yeah, so my website is just my name.com, stephaniecraner.com. And then I also use. Craner. I'm sorry, it's K R A N as in Nancy, 
we are. Everybody says Kramer, but that's not right. You won't find me there. <laughs> and then I How also spoke Stephanie. Is it stephkraner.com? Stephanie Craner. So S T E P H A N I E. No fancy officer wise in there. And then I'm also on Twitter at Steph Craner. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. And do you have anything at your website that we could, uh, that people could peruse or? I do. So I link to um, some previously published stories. There's the F and SF one, but. That's right. I could check that out. Yeah. 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 Um, and then I have a couple of older stuff that was published like 2008, 2012, not by a, a prosine, but um, markets that are no longer around that I just have on my website now, if you want to check them out. Very cool. Elizabeth, you have a pretty active web, web presence, excuse me, just a minute. You have a pretty active uh, website there with lots of cool stuff that I, I think I saw, right? Hold on just a second. Oh, no problem. Uh, doing a podcast, goodbye. <laughs> that would be my daughter. <laughs> I, I, I have twin toddlers. They just show up sometimes and scream. <laughs> yeah, wait till they get phones. <laughs> Oh, I, I then they know. can be at distances and scream. Yep. <laughs> anyway. um, so my website is ticknertales.com. That's mm -hmm. T-I-C-K-N-O-R-T-A-L-E-S.com. Uh, I think I have about half a dozen stories on there. Um, I'm going to be linking to, um, to Echoes of Meridian on there later today. Um, but obviously you can find it on the Bain website. I just, I'm going to plop the link on there. <laughs> um, Yes, on the front page. Uh, I'm I'm not very active on Facebook, but I do have a Facebook if people want to search me up. Um, I'm much more active on Twitter. I have my handle's at Liz Tickner, so L I Z T A T I C K N O R. Um, so people can check me out there too if they want. Um, my favorite story that's on the website before uh, this one is called "Run of the Thousand Faces." Um, and then there are two stories that are um, about stairs on there. There's one called um, the art of the art, the art of interpretation, or something along those lines. It's been a little while since I read that one. And then um, Warspawn is the one that has when Drora and Stairs first meet. Um, so those are fun to check out if you want more about stairs. But Run of the Thousand Faces is a fun one because. Uh, that one is about a character who gets in over their head and then tries this mad scramble to um, get out of trouble and spends the whole story getting in more and more trouble as a result. So those are my favorite types of characters to write, which is why that one means a lot to me. Well, well there's some, you also have some of your art up there as well, right? I think I remember seeing that when I checked it out. Yes some art up there. I need to go through and um, update some things because there's probably some newer pictures that I could find and put on there, but I have some art on there. Um, I need to update my blog more often. <laughs> I'm a little bad with that. Yeah, but, I don't care if you do or not, just write. Okay, I can do <laughs> yeah, that. That's As you become more of a writer, uh, a professional writer, um, the social media, people just, it, it starts to pull you away from what we editors really want from you. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, maybe just uh, put a couple of promo things on there and get back to the story. Finish that yeah. novel. That's so. kind of what I'm planning to do. Um, 
I I won uh, Writers of the Future the same month I found out about Bane, actually. So oh, I need to put a stop talking about the, both of those. But um, mm-hmm. Did, now, have you gone to their awards thing, or are you planning? Um, to? I'm planning. I, I the twins should be able to be vaccinated by then, which was my big concern, um, because it looks like they're going to be having. If assuming the trials go well, they should have vaccinations for toddlers um, in uh, December, January, mm-hmm. um, which that that was my big concern. So yeah. I should be able to go because their event is in next April. They do theirs yeah. uh, yearly. You should go um, because yeah. because Tim Powers will be there. Oh, I, I want to meet Tim Powers. Yes. I want to meet Tim Powers. Um, one of the people who read my story, and that was exciting. Yeah. Who's I think the the greatest fantasy writer we have alive until till you guys write your novels, uh, <laughs> and I happen to be his editor, and it makes me very happy to be able to say that. So, um, but Tim and he is the kind, nice, wonderful guy, and he will um, give you lots of great advice, um, as he did me when I was younger. So, uh, definitely go to that Writers of the Future um, thing if you possibly can. So, well. Um, all of you guys are tremendously promising, and we are very happy to uh, to talk to you and showcase your stuff and, and announce you're winning this contest that many, many, many writers entered, and you guys had uh, amazing stories that rose to the top, and we thank you very much for, for doing that. So, M. Elizabeth Tickner, Stephanie Craner, and C. Jonah Abbott, thank you very much for uh, talking with us here on the podcast. Having a pleasure. Thank you for having us. It was wonderful. Private Eye, Jake Sullivan, is a war hero and an ex-con. He's free because he has a magical talent and the feds need his help in apprehending criminals with their own magical abilities. Jake's talent is gravity spiking. He can vary the force of gravity however he wishes in an area. When it comes to spiking, Jake is the best. Now, a rich beauty walks into his office to hire Jake to find her missing husband, a magical healer who has ties to the Detroit mob. Jake takes the case, but little does he know that there are plots within plots waiting to ensnare him, and solving the case may require fighting for his life with the odds stacked against him. Here is the conclusion of Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas. The entire audio drama is also available for sale at Bain.com and at Audible.com. A Lewis machine gun is gas operated. A portion of the expanding propellant gas is tapped off from the barrel driving a piston to the rear against a spring. This drives a helical cam track in the bolt, rotating it at the end of its travel nearest the breech. This in turn allows the three locking lugs at the rear of the bolt to engage to latch it into place. The post carries a fixed pin that then fires the next round. The Lewis was designed with an aluminum barrel shroud that causes the muzzle blast to draw air over the barrel and cool it. The gun uses two drum magazines, one holding 47 rounds, the other 97. The Lewis was the go-to gun for heavies during the second Somme, 
it proved particularly effective against the undead. Locked, huh? Got no time for locked doors. Ugh. What do you know? 50 gravities and it's open sesame. Some kind of shop office. Johnny? Who's there? Johnny? Snowball? Did you get a healer? It's not Johnny, Bruno. Not Snowball either. Hey, the light hurts my eyes. What's the idea? Who the hell are you? I'm looking for Arthur Fordyce. Who? Don't play stupid, Hobman. Can't say I know you. God Almighty, what are you doing to me? I can't breathe. Just applying a couple of extra gravities. Spill, where is he? Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Can't you see I've got shot, mister? I've got a hole in my belly you can stick your fist into. You want to end up a pancake, Bruno? Oh my god! My guts are coming out! My guts out! Don't be a baby, I do jumping jacks in that gravity. Where's the healer? You think if I knew a healer, I'd be looking around like this, trailing my own intestines? Thank God did this to me, that sneaky apple knocker. One more chance. Where is he, Bruno? You've been playing, Oh, yeah, played. And now I got the drop on you, too. Too bad for you, whoever you are. Now eat lead. Oh! Hopman? Bruno? Damn, man. They blew your head off. Jake Sullivan! Is that you? Horowitz said you might be showing up. I bet he meant for us to off each other. <laughs> well, that ain't gonna happen. He knows my name. Can that psycho be right? Sullivan! You in there? Oh, Sullivan! So there I was in some dingy shop office inside a parts factory with Bruno Hopman's brain splattered all over the walls. Johnny Bones and his gang had me pinned with enough firepower to mow down half of Detroit. I did the only thing I could think of, reached out onto the factory floor and yanked a thousand pound steel plate between me and Johnny to provide cover. The problem was I was getting cold really cold, which meant Johnny's psychotic brother Snowball was somewhere around and directing his icebox power toward me. If I didn't do something quick, he was about to freeze me as solid as he did that bank guard. But I couldn't get a bead on him and I was shaking like a convict on a hot seat, only from the chill. I wasn't going to make it. Then, the cavalry showed up. I guess the smart Alec kid had earned his five bucks and delivered my message after all.
Johnny Mapletop. This is the Bureau of Investigation. You and your men are surrounded. Throw down your weapons. Hoover's bums? Oh, so the G-men want in on the action too? All right then. Head outside, all of yous. Kill them, every one of them. <laughs> we'll do it, Johnny. They ain't gonna know what hit them. Don't worry, Sullivan. We ain't forgot you neither. First, I got some cop cars to do. Then I'll be back. Icebox. They'll freeze those G-Men for sure. So much for my cover. Gotta get outside and help Cowley. Even if I have to blast my way through. Well, no time like the present. Get down, kid! They have a lot more firepower than we're prepared for! Yeah, I noticed. What should we do? Our jobs! We do our jobs! Oh! You got one, Agent Cowley! You got- Kid! Cold! I'm really cold! Kid! Agent Matheson! I'm really cold! You're turning blue! You're a murderer, Snowball! You're gonna fry! Hello, Copper. Johnny. You ever see what a shard can do, Copper? Get the hell back or I'll shoot. With what? You're out of bullets, Mr. G-Man! Hey, Mikey, look what we got here! Stick him. You sure you don't want to freeze him? Nah, I can't have all the fun. Stay back. Both of you stay back. Say goodbye, Kappa. What? Yeah, I heard. I'm floating up. Grab me, Johnny. I'm going up in the air. Give me a hand. That, that heavy must be around here somewhere. He's doing this. Johnny, your hands are like razors. I, I can't hold on. They're cutting me. I can't. Mikey! Mikey! You shot him out of the air. You killed my brother. You killed Mikey, you goddamn heavy! I'm gonna cut you! Oh, I'm gonna cut you to pieces, Sullivan! Jake, watch out, he's using his shot talent. Shut up, copper! Ah! Johnny Bones! That's just a taste of what I'm gonna do, copper. You want some of this, Sullivan? Well, you're gonna get it, you son of a bitch! Magazine's done! Damn it! Come and get me, Heavy! Callie! Jake, I'm reloaded. Don't shoot him, Callie. Please, we need one alive. You sure? I've got a bead. Yeah, I'll take him, Callie. I promise. Killed Mikey. Mikey's gone. Mama, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. The rest of your gang is done for, Johnny. I took two of them from behind with the Lewis. The G-men shot down the rest. <laughs> not, not before we killed some of them coppers. Yeah, you're gonna fry for that, Johnny. You think I care? I may be done for, but I'm gonna take you with me. I'll lay you open! We'll see. Take that! 
Not so easy when you try cutting into a rock, is it, Johnny? You may can get denser, but I can get sharper. You ain't seen nothing yet. I fought a shard in Rockville once. Just another punk with a chip on his shoulder. I ended his life just like all the idiots before him and all that came after. But it was a valuable learning experience. I understand shard magic now. You've never seen the likes of me. Johnny, that's what they all say. Where's Arthur Fordyce? I ain't got no gun. Oh, you're gonna shoot me down like a dog in the street, heavy? Arthur Fordyce, where is he? Come on, finish it. I ain't going to Rockville, and I ain't going to the chair. Tell me what you did to Fordyce! If you don't got the balls to shoot me down like a man, I'll take you with me. Ah! ah got you, Sullivan. How's that feel? A stabber jumping out of your chest? Never have seen that one before. But you should have gone for my gun hand, Johnny. You can't really control your talent so well, can you? Not when you have to do multiple transforms. How, how are you still standing? Practice. Lots of practice. I'll kill you clean, Johnny, but not until you tell me what I want to know. Fordice. That's 10 gravities, Johnny. Want to try for 20? Now where's Fordyce? I don't know who you're yapping about. You keep saying that name means nothing to me. The healer you and Mikey nabbed. Spill. <laughs> the, the, the Detroit healer? What, you think we took him? You've been scammed, Heavy. You saw Bruno. Check the boys. We ain't had no mending. You really don't have Fordyce? No, you heal. We don't. You killed my brother. I don't want to live without Mikey. You're out of control, Johnny! Your body's never going back to its original shape after this! Maybe before you use my brother's skin, I'd have stopped. Ain't got nothing to live for now. I'll cut you! God damn me for a fool. You never had Fordyce. You were telling me the truth, Johnny. Telling the truth. Last thing you ever did. You sent a message, said you had something. Not me. May has something. Yeah, sorry, May. You don't look so good, Jake. How'd you get that bummed up arm? Shot? Stabbed. Sadie, it's a long story. Has May found Arthur Fordyce? Yeah, she has. Funny name for him, though. Dead or alive? Not just dead, but sliced into pieces dead. That's why it took May so long to find him. Where? All over the city. Five, maybe six different places so far. Maybe more she hasn't found yet, but I told her that was good enough. May found the first piece in the deli uptown. She says most of them had already been eaten. Did you say eaten? Yeah, of course. People ate him. Sadie, you're telling me somebody chopped up Arthur and ate him? Yeah, 
Why is that so weird? But like I said, Arthur? Funny name for a porker. Porker? Porker. Pig. You know. Pig with the curly tail. Oh, wait. May says he was one of those white with brown spots kind of pig. The blood on the scarf. It was pig blood? Sure it was. You had to know that. No, I didn't know. Thanks, Sadie. Sure thing. You owe me 25 smackaroos and a Christmas present. That I do, Sadie. That I do. Bureau of Investigation, Agent Cowley speaking. Cowley, it's Jake Sullivan. How's your shoulder? I'll live. Hurts like the devil, though. Yeah, so does my arm. Thanks for saving my life, Jake. I don't mention it. Sure was a hell of a Christmas Eve. Johnny Bones and Snowball go down, and one of them purples gets whacked. Abe something with... Horowitz? That's the name. Tough guy from what I was told. Had to be an inside job since they got him at home. They have a suspect? You know how it is. Gangsters will be gangsters. No sign of forced entry, so Horowitz let them in, whoever he was. Then pow! Single bullet right to the back of the head. Found him in the kitchen with a bottle of wine open and a glass in each hand. How many glasses? Two, like I said. Can you double-check that? The report's sitting right in front of me. Thanks, Callie. Thanks a lot. Don't mention it. Hey, just a heads up. You'd better make yourself scarce around here for a while. Price has got his dander up that you didn't send that message to him instead of me on the Maplethorpe gang. You're persona non grata around here at the moment, if you know what I mean. Sure. Don't worry, I've got things to take care of. See you, Callie. Jake, what are you doing here? Come in. Don't mind if I do. Sit down, Jake. All right. Over here, next to me. I'm all right here. Late night? Yes, I've been so worried. I'm sorry, my hair's a mess and this robe. If I'd known you were coming, I'd have spruced up a bit. You look like a million dollars, Emily. You always do. Why, thank you, Jake. All these books on the shelves. I envy you, your library. Oh, they're Arthur's. I don't read much myself. Cigarette? No, thanks. Okay. <sighs> Merry Christmas, Jake. Yeah. So, do you have any news? You're a real piece of work, lady. Whatever do you mean? You can drop the act. I know I'm not the one that did all the killing last night. So how long have you known Horowitz? Must have been long enough that he wasn't scared to turn his back on you. 
I don't know what you're talking about. What a put-on act. You handed me the scarf. Said that was your husband's blood. It was his blood. Sure it was. Then you sent me to Horowitz. He sent me to Johnny Bones and Snowball. You two figured there was no way they'd be taken alive for questioning. Horowitz wanted the Maplethorpes gone anyway. And Johnny Bones and Snowball? Well, those two were the perfect scapegoats, weren't they, Emily? I'm not following you. Then, and this is the devious, cold touch. Then you shot Horowitz, because the only way two people can keep a secret is if one of them's dead. How dare you accuse me? Get out! Not quite yet, Emily. Why the pig's blood? How? If you knew Arthur, you'd know that the pig was appropriate. Well... I do say, you are smarter than you look, you big brute. So where's your husband? God, I need a drink. I think Arthur's in Argentina. He's run off again with one of his many mistresses. The man's 75 with the libido of an 18-year-old sailor. He does this all the time. He'll be gone for weeks, sometimes months, before he crawls back, begging forgiveness. But not this time. Why the blood? Why make it look like he was dead if he was coming back? Timing, Jake. Timing. Would you like anything to drink? I can't. It's illegal. Go stuff yourself. I had to be ready to act as soon as he ran off again. Arthur is declared legally dead. I get the insurance money, which is significant, let me tell you. Enough to be worth the risk. Then I clean out the accounts and I leave the country. The jerk comes home to find he's dead and broke. Serves him right. He could have just left him. We get a divorce. I get no money. Nothing. Zippo. I married that old fool for his dough. I just didn't realize how awful long a healer can stick around. Anyway... The kidnapping thing was Abe's idea. How'd you know, Horowitz? Aha! I've got you now, you big galoot. What's the matter with this thing? It won't move. I'll let go, damn you. I think I'll hold it in place with a few gravities. So what do you have there? A revolver, silver-plated, nice. Is that the gun you used to shoot Abe Horowitz? Damn you, Heavy. Sure it is. And I'll snuff you too the second you... Let... It... Go! Unless you're secretly inactive, you're not going to lift that piece, Emily. <sighs> I believe I will have that cigarette now. This your pack? May I? Go to hell! So, yes, I may. Where were we? Oh, yeah. Horowitz. I was a dancer in one of his joints. That's how I found Arthur. Arthur met lots of girls through Abe. I was just the first one sharp enough to catch him. I can see why. You do put on a great show. <laughs> Five years later, the timing was perfect. Arthur left again, and there was a crew that Abe wanted gone anyway to blame. So it was Abe Horowitz who sent you to me, not Arthur at all. Arthur didn't know you from Adam, far as I know. Abe just figured you were the guy to take out Johnny Maplethorpe. Abe, he knew you were a killer. But he didn't know you were, did he, Emily? Abe got greedy. He wanted half. Can you believe it? Half. 
So I went over to Abe's place, and he breaks out champagne to celebrate. Two glasses, one for him, one for me. The chump. He was smiling like a little boy that's got away with something. So I shot him dead. Then he wasn't smiling anymore. You killed Abe Horowitz. Sure I did. Now, once the insurance comes in, I've got his share. What are you going to do, Jake? Arrest me? You're just a private eye. I'm deciding about that. The truth is, you haven't got a leg to stand on. But I do like you, Jake. Whoops. My robe fell off. Poor little me, defenseless against a big, strong man like you. Please, have mercy, Jake. I can make it worth your time. I'll bet you could, Emily. I've still got a dancer's body, Jake. You see that, don't you? Oh, yes. Do you like it? I'm a man, aren't I? We can be so good together, Jake. I'll have money, lots of it. We can go anywhere, do whatever we want. All you have to do is say, yes. Say, yes, Emily. <sighs> that would have been more tempting if you tried to seduce me before you tried to shoot me. You no good son of a bitch! Put on your robe, Emily. You might catch something nasty. May! It's time to go. What in God's name is that? That's May, a disembodied spirit. I brought her with me. Sometimes you see her, sometimes you don't. Sweet girl, considering what she looks like. And she's the perfect witness. Memory like a steel trap. Show her, May. So I went over to Abe's place, and he breaks out champagne to celebrate. Two glasses, one for him, one for me. The chump. He was smiling like a little boy that's got away with something. So I shot him dead. Then he wasn't smiling anymore. You killed Abe Horowitz. Sure I did. I had May record our talk. Her kind is good at remembering exactly what gets said. Word for word. <laughs> no judge will ever allow that. No jury is going to take the word of a demon, you idiot. You obviously aren't going to kill me. No, I'm not. Then I walk away scot-free, Jake. With the money. All of it. I get away with it. I'm not going to show it to the law, girl. I'm going to send her to Abe's former gang, the Purples. No. I'm sure they're mighty anxious to know who murdered their admiral. Oh, God, no! I'll see myself out. And I'll be keeping your advance because I did solve the case. And Emily, if I were you, I'd start running. Considering what those purple boys will do if they catch you, you're gonna want a head start. No, 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 no! That's better.
Jake. You shouldn't have. You like it? Like it. This is enough tinfoil to last me for years. I know you can use it, Sadie. I got you something. Sadie, no. Money's tight for you right now. Money's always tight. Who wants to hire a broken-down old finder these days? Discerning clients who realize you're the best and always will be. Aw, Jake. That's sweet. Here's yours. Open it. All right. Sadie. Sorry it couldn't be more. Sadie, I don't know what to say. Where did you get this photo? That newspaper you wrapped my sandwich in? I saved it. I let May sniff it where you touched it. Then I sent her out. That picture's what she came back with. Says she found it in the drawer of a dresser in some second-hand shop down in Cleveland. Is it a good present, then? It's perfect, Sadie. Thank you. You know, May couldn't exactly tell me what it was a picture of, just that it was definitely connected to you in some way. Let me see. Now that's you in the middle there, them three boys. I can recognize you well enough. But who are the other fellers in the photo? My brothers, Maddie and Jimmy. This was taken just before we all went off to war. When we lived together in the old house. Are them boys still living? No. I'm sorry, Jake. But we are, ain't we? After all that's got thrown at us still standing? You, me? Yeah. Yeah, I guess we are, Sadie. Merry Christmas, Sadie. Merry Christmas, Jake. <laughs> and peace and goodwill to all. <laughs> or as near as we can come to it, seeing who we are. <laughs> sure, Sadie, sure. Peace and goodwill. Oh. <laughs> uh, I'm glad I'm spending it here. Oh, Merry Christmas. This has been Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa, set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles, starring Lex Wilson and Meredith Sousey, featuring Jim Mosketer, Tracy Coppage, Craig Brandwine, and Paris Battle, with Carter, Paul Kilpatrick, Richard T. Scarbez, Stephen G. Cooper, Koki Daniel, Paul Millsaps, and Gray Reinhardt. Sound design by Barry Jacob and Craig Brandwine. Recorded at Living Arts College B2R Studios. Music by Maddie Karras and Sherry Leone. Assistant director, Alex Granados. Adaptation and script by Tony Daniel. Directed by Rika Daniel. Bain Books publisher, Tony Weisskopf. Bain Audio Drama from Bain Books. The heart of science fiction and fantasy. For more Bane audio drama and great Bane books, visit Bane.com. We hope you have enjoyed this production.
That was the conclusion of an audio drama presentation of Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to podcast theme composer, Ruth Junkowitz. Dragons and dragons stuffed with more dragons and lithium torches and cigarette butts. All sprinkled with sulfur and made to obey by their nicotine addictions. Plus thanks, praise, and happy wishes to the Bane Fantasy Adventure Award Top 3, M. Elizabeth Ticknor, Stephanie Craner, and C. Jonah Abbott. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. Keep reaching for the stars.